Brilliant. So I do have the privilege of introducing Patrick. And um, some of you have uh, heard him speak before, uh, but both Patrick and Felicity are very much now part of Eastgate. And Felicity, in fact, is really on the administration side, very much part of um, Heaven in Healthcare, which is growing and growing. And Patrick and Felicity have done, gone through school, and, but put all of that aside, they're just amazing people. And if you get the opportunity to have a chat with them, you just feel like your heart has just expanded when you've spoken to these guys. So Patrick is a writer. There's so much more. Uh, but also he's um, he described as a father within the business community, a leading sort of father of leaders within the business community, I guess you could probably describe him as. So it is a real privilege to welcome Patrick and just make him feel welcome. Good evening, Saints. How are you doing? Um, it's the 15th of July, and uh, this time last week, uh, David Webster and I were talking about this service, and we looked, it looked as though England might go all the way to the final. It looked like after, is it uh, 52 years, we'd raise that cup again. 15th, 15th of July was going to be a red letter day. Well... Um, I think there's something on 15 for me personally because I was 15 years old when I was at Wembley seeing England win the World Cup against West Germany. I was behind the goal where Gordon Banks let in the first goal. Actually, it sounds like he deliberately did that. I didn't mean that. When the Germans scored their first goal in the first half, I went in with a sore throat I came out speechless. I could not talk. Let's hope that doesn't happen tonight. Or maybe you will be praying for that to happen tonight. Um, But I just thought there was something on the number 15. So before I begin, um, does 15 mean anything to anybody here? Is it the date of an anniversary? Lorna, yeah. You live in flat 15. Okay, that's good. Could you stand for a moment? I want to call out something for you. And there's somebody else there, yeah. Lorna, flat 15, but you are in sharp relief. The Lord is calling you to live life in 3D. I know you had a health scare recently, and I don't know that by word of knowledge. I know that in the natural. But uh, Father God is going to call you into something marvelous, into something truly tremendous. It is going to be in 3D. It is going to be vivid. And the last days for you are going to be greater Great. Yeah, he's whispered that to you. Well, there's your confirmation. Let's give Lorna a hand. Who was it? Ah, this lady. What what is your name, please? Rebecca, could you stand? You're the lady who was at evening school when I visited. And you got healed. How long was it you were in a wheelchair for? Two and a half years. Wow. You are, you are a runner for the Lord. You are a runner and a dancer. And you are going to bring vitality to the kingdom all around you. Gone are the days 
of frustration, you are going to run for him. And you're going to, you're going to be pleased with his smile. So, bless you, Rebecca. Yeah, let's hear it for Rebecca. Is there any, anything else on 15 for anybody here? Uh, Father's being particularly generous. David? No, I didn't. She is a dancer. And the enemy tried to snatch that from you. Yeah, he won't. He won't. No, that's brilliant. Come on. (laughs) That is brilliant. Anybody else while we're on a roll? Okay. There's, There's still a 15 here. I was 15 months old when this happened. Now... I don't remember much about it, obviously. But um, my parents at that time lived in a market town in the Lincolnshire Fens. If you know the Fens at all, it's very flat and it's very vulnerable to flooding. And it was the night of Saturday the 31st of January 1953 to Sunday the 1st of February. And it was one of the worst natural disasters this country ever experienced. I don't know if you, you heard of it. Does anybody know what I am talking about? You're nodding your head. The, there was severe flooding. There was. Um, all along the coast, um, it stretched for hundreds of miles. And uh, people died in Scotland. Uh, in England, I think over 100 people died from flooding. Thousands were displaced and homeless. But it was even worse in the Netherlands and in Belgium. This was the uh, weather map on that night. You can't really see it here, but there's a very severe low pressure here. And it was a combination of a spring tide and uh, massive storm winds. And it broke all of the sea defences around the coastline. And uh, these flatlands were flooded. It stretched inland three miles. We were five miles away from Gibraltar Point. Um, This is what it looked like. These were the areas around here that were flooded in Zealand in the Netherlands. As I say, over a thousand people lost their lives that night. And this was the picture from a U.S. military uh, helicopter the next day. It was bad. But as a consequence of that, these nations redoubled their efforts to build the sea defences, the sea walls. And of course we've got things like the Thames Barrier now. We're the the wrong side of it, but hey, you know. (laughs) Actually, I live near the River Medway, and uh, between Rochester and Maidstone, the River Medway is tidal, uh, as it flows down into the Thames estuary. And you can walk on a raised river defense. The Americans called it a levee. And every so often you will see sluice gates. Because when the tide is low, the land needs to drain the water into the river. But at high tide, the sluice gates are shut. Now this beautifully illustrates what I want to talk about tonight, a boundary. A boundary does three things. A boundary says a powerful no. It says a no 
to the enemy, whatever the threat is, the sea, hostile troops, whatever. It's a powerful yes inside the boundary. It's a safety. It's interesting, uh, one of the people said in the Lamb testimonies, I think it was yourself, Jonathan, that Lamb is a safe place. There's a boundary around there. Um, It creates safety, it creates peace. But also the third thing about a good boundary is it's porous. It lets things in and out. Um, A lot is taught in scripture about the walls of Jerusalem and the gates. And we enter the gates with praise. We enter the gates with praise. That's a good boundary. So what our friend, the friend of this house, Danny Silk, has done in this fantastic book, Keep Your Love On, is to talk about relational boundaries. And in his book, you will see a diagram that looks something like that. That's my version of it. That in terms of our relationships with people, what's healthy is that we have boundaries, but they're not all the same. That our most intimate relationship always should be with our God, our loving God. And then next with, if we have one, a husband or wife. So my relationship with my wife is more intimate than it would be with, say, our grandchildren who came and visited us this week. Brilliant. I mean, my grandchildren have access to lots of my time and resources, but they don't have the same access as my wife does. That's right and proper. So well-ordered relational boundaries move to the outward, outwards like that. Um, as well as uh, Danny's book, Keep Your Love On, I would also recommend, if you're interested in this, to read this by two Christian clinical uh, therapists, uh, psychologists, uh, Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend, a book called Boundaries. Really good. Um, and when I was thinking and praying about this message tonight about boundaries, it's really the ones t- towards the center I was concerned about, I was exercised about. Because if we, leave, if we lead boundaryless lives, it is very, very dangerous. There's one verse in Scripture that is a key verse. Well, there are several key verses, but this one, I, I, I feel every Bible I own, I should have this underlined, and maybe you should too. And it's from the book of Proverbs, and it says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything flows from it. Translations differ. You know, uh, The wellsprings of life issue from it, some ha- translations have. But that word guard is the Hebrew word netzah, netzah, which is the word that they use for watchman on the wall. It's as if we're supposed to have a wall around our hearts and we're supposed to be watching after our hearts. This is good living because it's, it's abundant living. You remember Jesus said, out of the abundance, you know, um, and streams of living water will flow out from us. This is key to us living the abundant kind of life. So, what I want to talk tonight really is about, and and share with you, is what I'm discovering about the kingdom dynamic of this boundary thing, 
and some practical suggestions. And I just want to end with fresh eyes on this place. I say fresh eyes um, because Felicity and I have only been here a while. We've only been here as members of Escape since October. And I think I've got something to offer. David Webster's looking very worried right now. But here we go. So let's have a look at the kingdom dynamic. I think it works like this. You see, in Hebraic thinking, in Hebrew thinking, Hebraic thought is circular. Greek thought is very linear. And what we've got here is a process in management terms. It's a reality that I've tried to distill in terms of these steps. It always begins with grace. God puts grace into our lives. Every single person who is who has encountered Jesus and accepted him as, his, as their saviour, is a miracle's happened. The grace of being a new creation, of being born again. So it begins there. But actually, what we can't do is abuse grace and say, it's all God, it's nothing of me. Actually, that's not true. We have a responsibility to guard our hearts. And so whatever grace God gives us, we focus on and value, we steward, and then God does it again. He gives us more grace. So we get a kind of virtuous circle. It just gets better and better if we do our part. You remember the the parable of the ten minas or the ten talents? The ruler wants to extend his kingdom. So while he's away, he gives his servants uh, these talents. And then when he comes back, one has improved it uh, by making ten times as much. And he says, great, that's now qualified you to rule over ten cities. That's quite an upgrade. And then he says to the next servant, um, what have you done with your mina, your talent? And he says, well, actually, I've stewarded it, so I've got five, five now. He says, great, you can steward five cities, upgrade, because that has qualified you for more grace. And then the one who buried it, who didn't do anything, didn't even invest it in a bank. Okay, I can't trust you with stewarding that, so I'm going to take it away from you, and I am going to give it to the one who's my superstar, the ten. And everybody says, but that's not fair. No, grace isn't about being fair. Grace is grace. This is the kingdom dynamic. But we have the privilege of partnering in this. We've been exercised before this service about the hope in the promises of God. So if we focus and value on those promises, and one of the ways to do that is to write them down. If we focus and value them, And then we steward those promises by stepping into them. Guess what? The kingdom dynamic is the king will smile on us and as we persevere, he will multiply that promise. There's more. We belong to the kingdom of more. The kingdom of his government, there will be no end. Of the extension of his government, says Isaiah, there will be no end. That's the kind of stewardship our Lord is looking for. He's scanning his church 
to see who are the stewards that will take his kingdom to the next level. So this talk of boundaries is very much to do with stewardship. How do we steward it? See, the thing is, God's got an ever-expanding kingdom. God's infinite. We're not. Okay? We are not infinite. There's only so much we can cope with. So what I'd like you to do is, if you've got a Bible or if you've got a Bible app, turn with me to this passage, because I just want to illustrate to you how boundaries, once you understand them, they're all over what Jesus did and modelled. So turn with me to Mark chapter 5, and we'll begin at uh, verse 21. Everybody got that? So here we go. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Now, just imagine this. I am sure a lot of them wanted to hear the greatest rabbi who ever walked the earth teach. A lot of them would be there to hear what he had to say. But I can tell you this, there would be a lot there who wanted healing. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed, even maybe the lepers as well. They were forming a ministry queue. Okay, imagine that. So he gets out and there's this crowd that need him that need him to do what he does. And then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he jumped the queue. He fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. And most of us missed this. But what Jesus did by going with Jairus was to say no to the ministry queue. Okay? God become man, limited himself in a body. And Jesus is just showing here how in a moment of urgency and compassion, facing a man who had faith that he could heal his dying daughter, decided to go with him. But the crowd weren't having any of that. They followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal under the care of the doctors. Most of you know this story, don't you? Go like that if you're still listening to me. Um, you, You know the story. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. The dynamic here was that she had been taught because she was bleeding, she was unclean. And if she touched anybody, that she defiled them. And this teacher was on a mission of urgent mercy. And she didn't want him to know about it but she needed to be delivered from her illness. And so, she tried to do it in secret, and immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, 
Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. Now, Jesus had been focused and was valuing the urgency that Jairus had put, put on him. But now, his focus shifted entirely. And he said, who touched my clothes? The disciples said, you're kidding. Look at the crowd. But he wouldn't budge. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing that she'd been found out, came trembling. Jesus was about to have a boundary moment with just her and this woman. And she was feeling extremely vulnerable. She came trembling. And he said to her, note this, daughter, not religious, you've just defiled me, you horrible woman. But daughter, you and I are family. You and I can be intimate in this moment. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some of the men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Up to this point, we don't know that Jesus had raised anybody from the dead. We're not sure of the chronology in the Gospels. But the people who came with the message said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? There's nothing he can do. While Jesus, uh, sorry, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler. So he turns his focus, turns what he values now to Jairus. And he says, don't be afraid. Just believe creating safety in the connection with Jairus. He says, don't be afraid. I'm not sure what he was expecting Jairus to believe. Now, here's another boundary. This has now changed. There's an extremely sensitive situation with an apparently dead girl. She was dead. So Jesus draws another boundary. He won't even let all of his disciples come with him. He only has his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. So there's now five of them, reduced down to five, going towards Jairus' house. Jesus, Jairus, Peter, James, and John. When they get to the house, there are some people who love a good wake, making a commotion and crying. And I don't think there was sincerity about it because when he went in and said, why all this commotion and wailing, the child is not dead but asleep, they laughed at him. Their grief couldn't have run that deep if they just switched to laughing like that. So he clears them out. He draws another boundary. Now there are only six of them in the daughter's room. Jairus, his wife, Jesus, Peter, James and John, and the dead body. And he takes her by the hand, the little girl by the hand, and he says, Talitha Kawum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up, walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. I bet they were. And he gave strict orders not to tell anybody. There's a boundary. Do you see how Jesus operated with boundaries? and then gave practical instructions that she should eat. In that passage, which may have taken an hour or two, Jesus was constantly redefining his boundaries and who he was engaging with next. 
All right? So, if we look at this process a little bit more deeply, what we focus on and what we value, particularly as we worship and read the scriptures and dare to believe them, is who we are. And I have to credit David again for an excellent message on Wednesday at Global Legacy on our identity, on our royal identity. Because when we begin to understand the answer to that question, who am I? It's not who the world tells us we are. It's who our loving Father tells us who we are. And then we begin to work out from this. Well, if, if I am that, if I am a royal priest, if I am a beloved child of God, if I am the brother of Jesus, then the kind of things I do are these things and not these things. Our identity helps us define what our boundaries should be. But that's true for all of us. What can be quite unique to each one of us is our destiny. When we begin to uh, figure out what we're supposed to be about, what we're supposed to do. This quote comes from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was told by the world, you're nothing but a Hebrew slave. Actually, he rose to the ranks of being cupbearer to King Artaxerxes and then was sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, a boundary. And he was rebuilding them with the old burned stones. Really interesting story. But he was regularly opposed by the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God's intention, God's uh, agenda. And... Chief among them were Sanballat and Tobias. And they at one point said, come out and meet us. We'll be on the plains of Ono. If you were in um, uh, the Backlands Conference, I think it was a year ago, Steve Backland talked a lot about this, about the plains of Ono. If any time people are taking you away from doing what your destiny is, that's an Ono moment. Oh no. And this is how Nehemiah had to reply several times, multiple times, to keep the boundary of what his purpose was here on earth. I am carrying out a great project. I cannot go down. Why should I, why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? I find this particularly healthy, helpful and healthy. I'm the sort of person that grew up at school wanting to be friends with all the gangs. Wanting to keep in touch with all of them. And the fear of missing out in my life has been strong. And the Lord has been teaching me about that. I cannot do everything. He is infinite, I'm not. He has given me a job. He has given me a destiny. And I live the abundant life. When I say what Nehemiah says, I'm not going to stop this great work that Father's called me to do. I am going to get on and do this. That is a good internal boundary. That is a good internal boundary. And then the word priority comes from the Latin word prior, which means first or foremost. Did you know for centuries we use the word priority exclusively in the singular? Until 
the 20th century, when so many things we could do were opening up for us, we made it plural. We pluralized it. And it makes a nonsense of priority. For example, in my business, I was called in to consult to a major NHS body. And uh, just to get clarity in my own mind, what's your priority, I asked. And they said, oh, we've got 35 corporate priorities. I choked and then I laughed. That is crazy. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. What is the priority on your life? What is God calling you to do? Singular. So, <clears throat> we steward what we value. And this is a, a verse I read recently in my own studies. Remarkably, Saul of Tarsus was stopped in his track as a persecutor of the church and given an assignment, a destiny, to take the good news of the kingdom to the non-Jews. What an irony, again, because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. If anybody was beyond the pale, it was non-Jews. But instead, God's genius gave Saul, who later became Paul, stewardship of this job of revealing God's grace to the non-Jews, what the people who were called Gentiles. And he did steward it, and he stewarded it well. And he wrote letters that have become so powerful, they, they became part of the canon of the New Testament, and have edified Christians for the last 20 centuries. That's good stewardship. You'd agree with me? That is good stewardship. He left us a tremendous legacy. And he goes on to talk about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Riches that we can't even Google. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And he made known these mysteries to us. But they're not going to form, fall into our laps. We need to study them and get before the Lord in prayer and say, what does this mean for me right now? So, in John 15, John says, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Anybody who abides in me, anybody who's plugged into me, will bear much fruit. And he says, my father is the vine dresser. And any branch that doesn't bear fruit, he cuts off and throws in the fire. But he says, even the fruitful branch, branches, he will prune. Our experience often is, as we pursue our destiny, it's unclear to start with. And as we step forward, we have multiple opportunities. And then father begins to prune them and narrow them down. It's really a, a, a beautiful process. I don't know if any of you have had a vine that you've pruned. We did when we lived in Oxfordshire. And I remember Felicity saying to me in the autumn, oh no, you've cut that back too far. I never did. I never did. Every year we got an even more abundant bunch of grapes and so on, didn't we? It's, the vine it loves being pruned. It becomes more fruitful. 
And this is what we find, that we must prune back what we do. We must cooperate with the vine dresser. And this is what Chris Fallison says in his latest book, Poverty, Riches and Wealth. There are limits to what I can carry. If I violate those boundaries, I will become useless. Powerful words. So, that's the kingdom dynamic. Let me just move on to the last two points very quickly. So how do we do this? Well, it's frozen. That's interesting. Um, I'm I'm just going to have to read this out. You're going to have to miss the visuals. I'll send out a link so people can get this. It's to learn how to say no. It's to learn how not to be enticed by the next email that comes in your inbox. It's to learn how when somebody has got an otherwise good enterprise, actually it's not mine. It's not my job. It's not my destiny. It's not my calling. But to do it in a way that's not brutal. Um, And I'll give you a personal example of how this works out. Um, I, a few years ago, I was at a leadership conference, a, a, a Christian leadership conference, and the principal of Southern, the University of Southern California shared with us how he went on a news fast. He stopped watching the news. And I thought, I'll try that. And um, it's become more than a fast, it's become a lifestyle. I don't watch the news now at all. Because for me, and this isn't necessarily true for any of you, for me, to watch the news is like emotional pornography. It's negative and it begins to weigh all the world's problems on me. I know of other Christians who can watch the news and use it for intercessory prayer. Good on you but it will just overwhelm me emotionally. And I get a lot of the news in an objective form indirectly. For example, with the recent uh, kerfuffle in the cabinet about Brexit, I've been able to read David Davis's resignation letter and read Theresa May's letter of acceptance. I feel I'm well informed. I feel I'm well informed. Without the overlay of speculation and negative opinions and the sky is going to fall on our heads. We don't need that. So that's one of the ways I operate boundaries. And it's a personal example. I'm not advocating that everybody should do it. But think about that. Who says we have to watch the news? What I am not saying is to be brutal with people when we say no. We're to be gracious with one another, loving, to bear one another's burdens. I am not saying only do what you like. We have a service to one another. It's an honor to be speaking to you because I love you and I am trying to serve you. I am not saying that your priority will never change. As we saw in that passage in Mark's Gospel, Jesus' priority was changing moment by moment. That is not wrong. But try not to head for two things at the same time. As as Jesus said to Martha, he said, Martha, Martha, you are distracted by many things, but only one thing is needful. Mary has chosen the better way. 
She's chosen to sit at the feet of the world's greatest rabbi who's come into the living room. And it will not be taken from her. We're encouraged to think multitasking is normal. It's not. Um, I'm not saying you can be fickle about your commitments either. I'm still trying to work that out. And I'm not saying that Patrick Mayfield has got this nailed. Okay? I'm still working this out as well. But I'm telling you that Father's really pleased as we struggle with this because we're beginning to align ourselves with the way the kingdom advances. And so finally, I want to just talk about the fresh eyes. Because if I could sum up what I'm trying to say, boundaries are what, how we grow our kingdom potential as powerful people with healthy boundaries. If, as we create and maintain healthy boundaries, we will live that abundant life that we've been promised. We will have relationships that are actually safer and healthier than they might otherwise have been. And we begin to change the world. My fresh eyes are these. We came in October and joined Eastgate. And let me put it this way. Whenever I recruited somebody into my business, the first day I'd sit down with them and I'd say, look, you're going to see things here that don't make any sense to you. If they don't, please tell me. If they don't make sense to you, if you don't know why we do them, tell me. Because... You have fresh eyes. We've got so used to them, they're like dead bodies we step over. It's just the normal we've got used to. So here are my fresh eyes. This place, I love it. This place has got uh, a culture of honor and of empowerment, and it's glorious. I wouldn't want to be a member of any other church. Pete Carter says, we don't build a big church, we build big people. And I, you know, I've watched him closely and I believe him. But what goes with that are what I call the white water rapids of Eastgate. There is a lot going on. And there are a lot of people who do need help. We will need help with the kids over the summer, for example. It doesn't mean that we all need to do that. We need to be powerful people. I need you to be powerful people as well. I need you to know when to say no because that way I'm blessed Amen Why don't you all stand and I'll give you a little bit of an impartation before we end Father thank you thank you for the saints I'm looking at thank you for the calling on their lives Father, I pray that by your spirit you will call out their greatness. You will call out their boundaries. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for these powerful people in the making. Amen.